So, um, we have just engaged in a spiritual process called kirtan. Uh, the word kirtan comes from a Sanskrit root, kirt, which means to glorify, to praise, to talk about, and so on. So, in a sense, to understand kirtan when we talk about the value or the spiritual power of kirtan, uh, we are talking about the type of philosophy of language. Because when we <coughs> chant Hare Krishna or all those nice mantras you were chanting, um, we are speaking or singing or chanting words. And most of the words we just chanted are uh, names, specific names of Krishna. So for thousands of years, even in Western civilization, people have wondered about they have wondered about um, the relationship between a word and the object that the word describes or denotes. Um, Plato actually wondered about this. So that, for example, when we say the word, let's say, you could say house, maison, and what is the relationship? Does the English word, for example, house, have any special relationship with a house? Or is it simply an arbitrary word that somehow linguistically evolved in English or in French, in maison, casa, in Spanish, and so on? So I think we can conclude, when we look at the hundreds of languages in the world, or perhaps thousands of languages, that we cannot say that any particular language has a special relationship with the objects that it denotes or describes. And that we can basically communicate the same message in any language if we know that language well. So what is kirtan? because kirtan is the chanting or singing of language. Um, we know that language in general can have great power to evoke emotions. Uh, there are songs that we, sometimes we can hear a song and cry because it, it reminds us of something very important in our life or something very emotional. Or we can read poetry or a novel or sometimes people can say things to us like, for example, if someone says to us, I love you, je t'aime, or je ne t'aime pas. J just a few words can change our life. So we know the general power of language. Language also allows us to conceive. It's um, people that don't possess skill in any language will find it very, very difficult to think clearly. So that's the general power of language. But in this case, 
we are engaged in chanting spiritual language, or we claim we are engaged in chanting spiritual language. So, in what sense can we say that the relationship between an ordinary word and its the object intended, the meaning of the word, we can simply say, how is that different from spiritual language and can there really be spiritual language? Now, there, there are basically two approaches to explaining reality. I mean, and these basic two approaches are what I could call in English top down or bottom up. In the sense that does the world begin in a very, very simple state and gradually evolve into more complex forms? Or does the world begin in a supreme state? When I say world here, I, I don't just mean the earth, la terre. I don't just mean the earth or not even just this universe. But here, if we can imagine with the word world, le monde, uh, we simply mean everything that exists. So, um, does the world begin in a very simple state and simply evolved, or does it begin in a very complex state and then uh, you could say devolve? I mean, one more question, actually. Uh, actually, I, I said this, you know, the basic two ideas, but let's add two more ideas, so we have four ideas. Sort of. No? Sorry. Anyway, sorry to uh, take you through all this. But let's say if, if the world comes from some higher existence, I can keep it at two. If the world comes from some higher existence and, and then reality kind of expands down into this world, which would ordinarily be seen as a spiritual concept of life or a spiritual worldview, then, and, and, and of course the idea that things begin in a very primitive, simple state or the most primitive, simple state possible and then evolve, that would be generally a materialistic worldview. So, if there is some higher reality which then somehow extends itself into this world, then there are two subcategories. Basically, if you look at all the religions of the world, uh, they have explained reality in one, of the, in, in one of two ways. And that is personal and impersonal. People in general, I would say people that have not seriously studied world religions, have the idea there's just almost an unlimited number of religions and they all contradict each other because each religion claims that only we have the truth and since they all claim that the most probable fact is that none of them have the truth and so on. So again, people that think this way, uh, one thing they have in common is that generally they have not seriously studied world religions. Because if you actually do seriously study world religions, what you find is there are not that many ideas. There actually are only a few basic ideas. Now, religions may disagree on the details, historical details of specific revelations. Like a religion may say God came to the world, 
or the Son of God came to the world in this country or that country, or a prophet came to the world, or the Buddha. So they, they, they may say that the divine appeared in this part of the world or that country, or and so on. These are just historical details. These are not philosophical details. Uh, these are not philosophical points. They're simply historical details. So for the moment, I mean, inevitably, historical details must be different. Everyone in this room has a different history. There are no two people in this room or any room that have exactly the same life history. Born on the same day, same second, same hospital, same parents. Well, maybe you're twins. But even, but even then, our lives are different. So history, history is always different. However, even if you look at the German philosopher Hegel, Dr. Professor Hegel, obviously German, um, he had the idea of a philosophy of history. Marx actually also had a different philosophy of history, but that's for another day, you know, Bach to Karl. So, but histories are always different, but philosophical principles can be the same. For example, look at uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Just for an example, I'm going to leave out Eastern religions, which also we could talk about, but for now, let's talk about what are called the three Abrahamic religions. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Abrahamic in the sense that all of them trace their traditions to Abraham. Abraham. Now, even though they've fought many wars, they've, you know, taken, they, you know, they've been very enthusiastically killed each other for a very long time. And even within religions, like in the Protestant Reformation, they've found they can also become very enthused by killing people within their own tradition. That also seems to have enthused a lot of them. And if you look at the Shuni, anyway, you all know something about this history. But they all believe some universal principles. For example, they all believe in one God. They all believe that one God in some way, in some way is personal. For example, that one God desires to communicate with creatures, with us, and in fact has the ability to communicate so, and does communicate with human beings. All of them, at least in their more mystic divisions, because in, let's say those who were more like yogis in all these religions, they believe there's some kind of eternal soul. There's some kind of eternal soul. So we could make a long list of philosophical or theological or metaphysical principles on which they all agree. But when you go into historical details, no, this is the only, this is the prophet, or this is the son of God, or the, you know, we're not really interested in prophets and sons of God. So. They, they disagree. So what we're looking at here, not, we're looking not at historical details, but at basic worldview, a basic way of understanding reality. So if you look at all these traditions, and, and here we can include Asian traditions, Buddhism, Hinduism, Jainism, and so on and so forth, some people have believed that God is ultimately impersonal. That when you finally realize or understand God, it's something impersonal. And other people believe, no, God is personal. Now, 
Let's get back to language. You see, despite my age, I actually remember what I said about 15 minutes ago. So we're going to talk about philosophy of language because we're talking about kirtan. So the status of language itself, can there be spiritual language? Because if there's not spiritual language, how can there be a spiritual kirtan? Because kirtan is simply an expression of language. So the real philosophical issue here is, can there be such a thing as spiritual language? Now, if there is spiritual language, something else is logically entailed. How do you say entailed in French? Yeah. In philosophy, entailed means that if, that if this is true, something else must be true. For example, uh, what's a good example? Um, if I say, this is a glass of water, that means it must be a fact that, the, that whatever's inside this glass is wet. <laughs> so, because one, in other words, one fact entails, logically makes it necessary that something else be true. That's actually what entail means in philosophy. So in that sort of strict sense, strict, in, in, in that strict sense of the term, I said that if there can be spiritual kirtan, if it's even existentially possible to have such a thing as, as a spiritual kirtan, it, it must be, it's logically necessary that there be spiritual language, and if there are spiritual language, it must be necessary that God is ultimately in some way personal. Because how could something impersonal talk to you? Unless it could be a robot, but I mean, you wouldn't really worship a robot. Well, I take that back. <laughs> Matrix. But, so the idea here is that the very idea, that's why it's somewhat contradictory to do kirtan and to think you're glorifying some impersonal divine. But logical consistency is not probably the most prominent feature of this age. So the idea here is that if the absolute is personal, then things like language, beauty, music, falling in love, uh, all these things can be, or it's logically possible that all these things are eternal. If the ultimate truth is, if the spiritual truth is impersonal, then all of the personal features of this world, logically, are simply illusions. And that's exactly the conclusion that impersonal thinkers come to, that this world's illusion. So if you think you love someone, that's an illusion. If you think someone loves you, that's an illusion. If you think music can be beautiful, that's an illusion. If you think nature is beautiful, another illusion. If you think you can actually communicate with God, that's an illusion. So there's not much left. I mean, basically all you have left is your baguette and fromage. I mean, of course, but even that's an illusion, so you, you have to actually give up the reality of your baguette and fromage. 
Personally, I don't find this very attractive. Uh, I personally don't want to spend all eternity just glowing as some kind of impersonal spiritual energy. I mean, because glowing, if that's all you ever do, can actually get pretty boring. <laughs> actually, if we talk about Plato now, back to Plato, it's very interesting because Plato... Plato teaches the way many Vaishnav Acharyas have taught that this world is actually a reflection of a higher spiritual world. Now the Sanskrit words are bimba, which means an image or an object which you can actually perceive, like a phenomenological image, and pratibimba, literally a counter image. A counter image. To give an example, let's say you, let's say there's an apple tree in, in Northern Europe and America, you know, the apple tree is somehow like a classical object. So let's say there's an apple tree. They have apple trees in Russia, right? I'm not sure. Oh. They, they do, they do. They do. Okay. So let's say there's an apple tree and the apple tree is standing next to a clear lake. And let's say the water is transparent and it's not moving, so therefore it can reflect very well because, you know, water's moving, it doesn't reflect very well. So we have all the best conditions for a reflection. And we see the apple tree reflected in the water. Now imagine someone that just came to this planet from somewhere else and looked at the reflection of the apple tree and thought that was the real tree. Now, if we talk about the relationship between an apple tree and its own reflection, if we think about that relationship, then you could say in one way the reflection is very much like the apple tree, practically identical, and in another way it's completely different. So the reflection is identical to the apple tree in the sense that if the water is clear and still, it's not moving, nabushba, then uh, you get a perfect idea of what an apple tree looks like. It's like when you look at your face in a mirror, if it's a good mirror, and uh, you see exactly what you look like. Backwards, you know, but you see exactly what you look like. So that's the sense in which a, the pratibimba, the reflection, is exactly like the object which is being reflected. But if you are hungry and someone says you can eat all the apples in the reflection of my apple tree, uh, you're not going to have a good meal. You're, going to, you're not going to eat very much. Because the reflected apples, you can't eat them. Because it's not a real apple tree. Even though it looks exactly like the apple tree. It's just like, for example, when you see your image in a mirror. You know, the Brothers Grimm, Spieglein, Spieglein an der Wand, Veres, Schoenstein, Gans, and Mirror, mirror on the wall. How do they say that in French? Miroir, mon beau miroir. Qui est la plus belle? Yeah. So, you know, the whole mirror problem that we have. So, anyway. So when you look in the mirror, if it's a good mirror, you see exactly what you look like, which sometimes can be very... Well, for some of us, very depressing. But anyway, <laughs> so you see exactly what your reflection is. And yet, 
that's not you. I mean, it's when you move, the reflection moves, the reflection, in a sense, is, is you, but it's not you. So, in the same way, in the same way, Plato said, and actually we say, which means Plato's right, joking, that, <laughs> that actually um, this universe is a reflection of a higher world. So that when you, let's say, so, so why is it? For example, let's say we fall in love. You know, sannyasis are very romantic. So, let, so let's say, <laughs> joking. So let's say, for example, let's say you fall in love and you have that first sort of euphoric period when all of your love endorphins are firing simultaneously. <laughs> and, and you believe that, oh my God, I thought I would never have true love. But now. And then, of course, eventually the drugs wear off and you realize, oh my God, I married a human. Which is very shocking when you realize what that means. So, but the point is, why is it that when we fall in love or when we see beauty in nature, or for example, today I went to the beautiful village, the Belle Village, the Chateau Neuf. Beau village. Beau village. Beau village. Ah! <laughs> the only honorable thing to do if I mess up the French. Le beau, le beau village. <laughs> I don't know. It's really beautiful. I mean, if you like medieval villages, it's really beautiful. So, um, so we see beauty in this world. We see beauty in other people. We fall in love. We hear music that really raises us to a celestial consciousness and yet we become disappointed why because we are actually meant to fall in love forever that's actually what we're that's reality falling in love and then being disappointed is ultimately not real because real love never ends you know all those songs true love never dies anyway so, so if you feel that we suffer when, for example, we think we found true love and then it turns out we haven't, the reason we suffer is because we are meant for eternal love. We are meant to have all our desires fulfilled. The pure soul can actually fulfill all his or her desires. And so, or for example, let's say you love someone and that person dies. Why are we so shocked? Because in the real world, people don't die, actually. Or if you have a family and you don't want to lose your parents or other members of your family. Why? Because in the real world, families are eternal. So, I mean, just like someone who, who's very hungry and sees a reflected apple tree and dives in the water and... <laughs> no apple. Um... So we are frustrated and disappointed in this world because we are actually seeing reality, but a reflection of it. So when you see the reflection of the apple tree, you're actually seeing an apple tree, but it's a reflection. So even when our love endorphins are going, and you know, we think that we've found eternal love, 
And it turns out to be, no, about three weeks. <laughs> so, you know, even when that happens... <laughs> The point is that there is eternal love. So, the problem is not that we are persons. That's not the problem. The problem is that we are persons who are trying to enjoy a reflection instead of turning to the real object. That's the problem. So, Krishna consciousness, uh, that's what we're doing here. If you don't know that and you're shocked. Um, anyway, so, in Krishna consciousness... Um, we are simply trying to recover our real life, our real life, our real relationships, real music, real art, real nature, real friendship, real food. In other words, we are trying to literally discover, découvrir, découvrir, which means to uncover, discover, découvrir, or um, our, our real life. It's like waking up from a dream. I, I raised this point in a class, uh, I guess it was yesterday. My God. If you, are, if you are dreaming and you wake up and you realize that this is the real world, that was a dream, even though in your dream you were absolutely convinced that your dream was the real world. So in the same way, until we discover Krishna, or until we discover spiritual reality, we are absolutely convinced that the material world is the real world. But actually, it's just a facade. You have that word in French? Facade. Actually, you're right. It's like one of, one of our most intellectual presidents was uh, George W. Bush. <laughs> Unfortunately, he is turning out to be one of our most intellectual presidents. And so, anyway, it said that, I don't know if this is a joke, he said that when he, when he was displeased with France because they wouldn't blindly follow his crazy ideas, he said, um, the French don't have a sense of business. They don't even have a word for entrepreneur. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you wish you had a president like we do? No. <laughs> so, so anyway, um, going back to Kirtan now, sort of wrap this up. In Kirtan, um, Kirtan is spiritual because language can be spiritual and, and we are chanting or singing or hearing names of God. And uh, God is described as, I guess in Sanskrit it would be nirdvandva, which would mean non, there's no duality in God. In other words, going back to that question, the relationship between an object and the word that means that thing. Every word in French or English has a meaning. So, for example, again, uh, like the word, let's say, pommes frites. That's actually two words. But any, what? Pommes frites. I know, a lot of us right now are feeling very hungry. But let's say pommes frites. Um, we had some great pommes frites, actually, up on top of these mountains on the way to Dijon. When our, you know, we, our car broke down, and so we were... Actually, Krishna forced us to have these fantastic pommes frites, these French fries. But anyway, so... 
So if you think of, so in this world, let's say you're hungry, you just keep saying pommes frites, pommes frites, pommes frites, you know, French fries, America, it's like, sorry, you're going to just probably be more hungry because you're using all this energy to chant pommes frites, but... So, so we know in this world a, a word and that which it denotes are different. But spiritually, imagine a name or imagine a word that is identical to the object that it describes. And of course, that's the case with God. So if you study world religions, another way in which there are many similar teachings in world religions, practically in every major world religion, including Buddhism, by the way, if you look at Pure Land Buddhism, which was the dominant form of Buddhism in Japan, you find that uh, in all the world religions there is the understanding or the concept that God or the divine can be present in, that, in the name, that the name of the divine or the name of God is actually an incarnation of God. This is practically a universal idea in world religions. Now, to give one example, I'll give you a few examples, but, well, if you want more than one, you have to pay extra. <laughs> but, for example, in the Old Testament, if you look at the Old Testament, uh, the history of the building of the first temple in Jerusalem, which you may know something about, David, the great King David, wanted to build it, but he <laughs> had a little uh, hiccup, moral hiccup in his life. He had a problem with Bathsheba. He had an affair, so he was not allowed to build the temple. And so his son, Solomon, was given that honor to build the temple. So if you look at the description, like they're planning the temple, and then they're actually building the temple, and then they have the grand opening, and then later they're remembering the temple. Over and over again, what we find is that it, the temple in Jerusalem, the first temple, was built as a temple to the name of God. Actually, it was a temple of the name, like in Zanquit, Nama, Mandir. And that the Old Testament says that just as God lives in heaven, the name of God lives in the temple. So technically, all the worship that was conducted for centuries in the original temple in Jerusalem until it was destroyed by the Babylonians, that's another story, um, was actually worship of God in the form of his name. So, again, you can go through all the world religions and see how the name of God is taken to be an incarnation of God, or in Sanskrit, Namavatara. So, um, so when we chant, when we do kirtan, we chant, we're actually directly in the company of the Absolute Truth. So it's not merely, it is singing a name, but it's actually direct contact, direct association with the absolute truth. And the word in Sanskrit here for contact or association, of course, is yoga. Is yoga. And so bhakti yoga means that you connect to God, to the absolute truth, through love. If you think about it, I mean, think of all human relationships, the best kind of relationship is one of love. I mean, some people may think, no, I'd rather do business with someone than actually have a loving relationship. But, but most people can understand that the, high, the best kind of relationship was one of mutual love. And when you, if you actually are so fortunate 
as to experience real love in your life, then you know that that is actually the greatest thing you can experience, real love. And, and that's the most intimate connection. There's no relationship between people. There's no contact which is as powerful and intimate as love. And so Bhakti Yoga is, as Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita 647, he says, Yogi Nama Pisarvesham, indeed of all yogis, indeed of all yogis, Madgatenantaratmana, uh, literally, I'll translate this very literally for you, one whose inner self, Antaratma, inner self, one whose inner self has gone to me. Yoginama Pisarvesham, Madgatena, Antaratmana, uh, and then, um, oh my God. Shadhavan. Shadhavan, sorry. Thank you. I mean, Shadhavan Bajate Jomam. And one who has faith. Now, even the word faith that Krishna uses here is interesting because in Sanskrit there, there's more than one word for faith because there's different kinds of faith. La foi. La science de la foi. Um, if by faith you simply mean that I believe that God exists, as I say in Italian, Dio che. If, if, if you simply think that God exists, that's another word. That's actually the word astikya. From the, uh, from the Sanskrit word asti, which means he exists or she exists. So from the word asti, uh, even in French, I mean, if French was pronounced phonetically, which it often isn't, but if it was, wouldn't it be uh, elaced? Elaced. So when words, when words are spelled a certain way, it's because there was a time when people actually said it that way. Because we know that, that spoken language came first. And then people wrote down what they were speaking. So people wrote il est because they used to talk that way. Anyway, that's a whole other topic, history of language. But, so that what I, the, point, the point I want to make is the word is in English, est phonetically in French, ist in German, ace in Spanish and so on, that's all Sanskrit, asti. And it has the exact same meaning. So, uh, from this word asti, he or she exists, or is, you have the word astikyam, which means believing that God really is. Believing that God really exists. That's the word astikya. So what is the word shraddha? Which is often translated as faith. In fact, it's almost always, I think it's always translated as faith. But shrad, it's actually two words. It's shraddha. Da is a verb, which means to place. Uh, metra to, to place and uh, shud means trust to put your heart in or to put your trust so shraddha means not merely to believe that God exists shraddha actually means to really really put your trust in that to put your heart into it that's shraddha and that's what Krishna says you have to have if you want to be a great yogi Shatavan, Bajate Jomam, and one who thus. It's interesting, the word Bajate is also often translated as worship, one who worships me. 
But the word is actually much more complex than that. So I would like to say a word about, no, I would actually like to say several words about, uh, about this Sanskrit verb, pudge or pudgete. First of all, to get at what this word means, because it has, it has a very complex uh, meaning. Uh, it's typically used in ancient Vedic culture when someone asks someone else to marry them. When someone asks someone else to marry them. You know, in different cultures, there are different ways to propose marriage. For example, if you read 19th century English novels, in the early 19th century, uh, typically a way to propose marriage in England was to say, usually a man would say to the woman, please make me the happiest man in the world. And so if a man said to a woman, please make me the happiest man in the world, he meant, please marry me. And if the woman accepted and wanted to tell her family that he finally, this fool finally proposed to me. Uh, so if the, um, the woman, in order to tell her family, says that, like they say, well, what happened? And she'll say, I'm the happiest woman in the world. That meant he asked me to marry him and I accepted. So it's interesting, you can actually study, you can actually study in different cultures how people propose marriage. So how do people propose marriage in ancient Vedic culture? A typical way they do this, I'm quoting the Sanskrit now, is that the man will say, usually it's the man proposing to the woman, but he'll say, Pajaswamang Pajantang Twang, which means like, please accept me as I'm accepting you, or please adore me as I'm adoring you. And that's actually, and that's typically how they'll propose marriage. But the reason I bring this up is because they use the same verb, budge, like budgete. Pajaswamang, like budge me as I am budging you. I mean, in this, the Sanskrit verb. <laughs> So, so, so what does this word really mean? For example, the word budgete can also mean to share. It can mean to share, to divide things. Like, for example, we have the word bhakta, which means one who's devoted, or one who is you know, devoted to God. But then you have the word vibhakta, which means divided. Like, it means you divide something. Like, you, like because shares, you, you divide something. And so... So how do all these things fit together? The idea is that when you worship someone or like budget day, you're actually sharing your life with them. You're sharing your life with them and, 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 and you're asking them to share their life with you. And so in that sense, in, in, in the deepest sense of sharing, in the deepest sense of a type of communion, a, type, a relationship, in where people, in the most intimate and, and, and complete way, share their lives with each other. Uh, that, all, that same word also means worship, or adore, and so on and so forth. So it's a very interesting word. So when Krishna says, Shraddhavan Bhajate Jomam, one who has this Shraddha, this deep trust, really placing their trust in someone, and they... <clears throat> Budge Krishna. I mean, they, they, they share with Krishna. They, they want to share their life with Krishna completely. So whatever I am, whatever, 
you could say like you belong to yourself, right? Because your first possession, in a sense, is yourself. And in the Bhagavad Gita, there's even a Sanskrit word, Atmavan. Van, you, you know, means one who possesses, like Bhagavan. And by the way, the word Bhaga is from the same root as Bhaj. It's the same root, actually. I won't go into that. There's a whole explanation for that. So, but, um, so Krishna says, one who adores me, worships me. So Atmavan literally means possessing yourself, self-possessed. Atmavan, which is a word used, I think, a few times in the Bhagavad Gita. Because you can lose yourself. Krishna, Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita talks about possessing yourself, being self-possessed, and he talks about losing yourself. Because, I mean, for example, let's say you have uh, a million dollars, well, sorry, a million euros in the bank. That's actually even more. Let's say you have a million euros in the bank, but you forgot. You forgot that you have a million euros in the bank. And so effectively, you, when you lose the memory, you lose the object. If you have a relationship with someone and you forget that person, you forget the relationship and you no longer can act within that relationship. So, to, so if you forget that you are an eternal soul, if you forget that, that you are actually an eternal soul and you think you're the body, which you don't really want to be, because the body is temporary. So if you forget that you're an eternal soul, you've lost all the benefits of being a soul because when you possess something, it means you have the right to enjoy it, the right to use it. It's like if you own a house, you have a right to sleep in the house or you have a right to paint the house because it's your house. You can't sleep in your neighbor's house without your neighbor's permission. So to possess yourself means to remember your soul and therefore to be able to enjoy all the benefits of being an eternal divine person. So Krishna says, budget, so, and when you realize who you really are, you're an, you're an eternal... So if you want to be beautiful, like if you, know, if you look in the mirror and think, God, I wish I could change a few things there. Actually... When you realize yourself as an eternal soul, you, you will see that you're actually far more beautiful than you ever imagined or hoped. Because every soul is actually beautiful beyond anything you can imagine in this world. And so again, if we just find our real selves and then offer that to Krishna. That's the idea of budget. Krishna uses, so it also means, so accepting Krishna, worshiping Krishna, sharing everything, your life with Krishna. But anyway, Krishna says that one who's engaged, the word bhakti is from the same root as budge, by the way. Bhakti is from the same root. Bhajate, like bhakta, bhakti, bhajanam, it's all the same word in Sanskrit. So bhakti means that devotion, because when you really love someone, you want to have them in your life, right? You want to share everything with them. If you really love someone, let's say you really love someone and you just got some money and you really love this person, you want to buy them something. Or if you just found out some good news, you want to tell them. If you see a good movie, you want to tell... In other words, that's what it means to love someone. That whatever you have, you want to share it and you're not as happy just having it yourself as you would be if you could share it with the person you love. 
Isn't that a fact? Like, for example, let's, let's, let's say a man buys a house. But if his family's not there, it's like, what's the pleasure of having a house if your family's not there? And so that's the nature of love. So that's why bhakti, from the root, which means to share or to adore, means devotion, because it means that person you love so much that you want to share everything. You want to share your life with them. You want to share yourself as a soul, your deepest self you want to share with that person. So that's bhakti. So Krishna says, one who engages in bhakti yoga, because if you want to connect with the ultimate truth, that's obviously the greatest thing you can do. So Krishna says, samayukta tamomata, which is translated, I think, is, is, the, is the best yogi. What Krishna literally says, the word yoga comes from the Sanskrit root yuj, which means to connect, to link. And so yukta, if yoga means linking or connecting, yukta means connected or linked. So Krishna says one who engages in bhakti yoga is yukta tama, which means the most connected to me. Because yoga means to link, and so this person is the most linked. In other words, the greatest yogi. So, that's it. Uh, anyway, uh, so Kirtan, may I just mention one other thing? I have two books here. This is an infomercial. I'm an American, so obviously <laughs> I'm going to try to sell you something. So this is, right, you'd be disappointed if I came all the way from America and didn't try to sell you something. So, uh, this, this book which just came out is called Quest for Justice. And this is Bhagavad Gita, and that's the end of my commercial. <laughs> so, any other questions? So, your marriage? Yes. I think the topic of tonight was science and spirituality. Oh, whoops. <laughs> maybe some people came to hear oh. this science and oh. whoops question for I wish someone would have reminded me yes. yes I don't really understand what you meant I'm repeating yes. I don't really understand how God can be impersonal what do you mean by that comment est-ce que Dieu qu'est-ce que vous voulez dire Oui, oui, c'est un bon demain. It's a very good question. And actually, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> so, but if you look at the history of religion, there have been, in every religion in the world, without exception, I mean, in the Jewish tradition, you can talk about Maimonides in, in Moorish Spain, in Christianity, you can talk about Meister Eckhart, the impersonal. I mean, so in every religion, you, Shankar. So it's the idea. It's the idea that ultimately we are not really persons. And that God is some kind of spiritual energy. And that when you realize God, you will just merge into this energy. And it really is as boring as it sounds. So, because obviously, obviously, if there's an impersonal God, why would we have a personal world? Because how could God create the world without wanting to create the world? Like, did, was it just like a cosmic, 
like a divine burp or something. So, <laughs> so and, and if, if if we say that if we say that God created the world intentionally, because how else could He create it? Like, whoops! I didn't mean to do that. So, so if God created the world intentionally, then only people have intentions. You know, things don't want to do. I mean, because as soon as you talk about desire, intention, will, volonté, you're talking about a person. Like, like this glass doesn't have intention, will, desire. But I do because I'm a person. So, what about animals? Animals, yeah, vive les animaux. Yes, the only difference between a human being and an animal, well, maybe because the animal is a little more intelligent, but apart from that, um, they're different bodies. <coughs> For example, um, okay, imagine a lamp. If you, no, actually imagine a traffic light. How do you say traffic light? Okay. It's okay. You guys have to decide that. So, so as we know, there's red, yellow, and green light. Although mostly if you drive, there's mostly red lights. But technically there's also yellow and green lights. Always green with me. Yes, I know. So, so actually, all the light is just pure white light. Light appears to be red because it comes through a red screen, a red filter. And light appears to be yellow or green. So in the same way, inside every body, there's really the same kind of soul, same pure soul. But if you have, a, let's say you have a child's body, then you have child consciousness. Why? Because your eternal consciousness, your pure consciousness, is coming through that filter of a child's body. And that's why we have male or female consciousness. Or French consciousness, or Canadian consciousness, or Paraguayan consciousness, which is most prominent in the world today. So, anyway, there. It's just, it's really just the filter is different. Behind the red, yellow, and green light, there's the same light. It's just because it passes through a filter. So the animal, you know, inside the animal body, there's the same pure consciousness. But it's coming through an animal body. So the thing just sees and shot, or shin. So, so the, you know, the soul thinks I'm a dog or a cat or a leopard or whatever. There, there, there is a principle in philosophy called parsimony. Which means, and it's the same principle actually in modern physics. And that is that if you are expressing some principle, you should express it in the most simple possible expression. In other words, you should express it in the simplest way possible. If you can write a simple equation that explains something, why write ten pages of equations that says the same thing? 
Like, for example, let's say there's a pie and you want half the pie. You don't say, I want 10,000 20 thousandths of that pie. So, so that, that I, so we can explain everything in the universe with reference to only two things, two, two objects. There, are, there, there is individual consciousness and there is matter. And when consciousness comes through matter, it takes on the quality of the matter that it's coming through. For example, if you study modern astronomy, Basically, all that we think we know about the universe is based on uh, analyzing light. Because when, when light comes from a distant galaxy or, a dist or some star in our galaxy, all we really have is light. And so astronomers analyze the light, and by analyzing the light, they try to understand what the light passed through, therefore, you know, what kind of matter exists in the universe, what kind of composition a particular celestial body has by seeing what the light came through. And so in the same way, consciousness just comes through a material uh, covering. I, I was mentioning earlier today that in, in the French Revolution, La Revolution Française, that one of the principles of the French Revolution was animal rights. And for two reasons. First of all, uh, the French Revolution was a revolution against tyranny, against exploitation, and uh, the revolutionaries saw an obvious analogy between rich people or powerful people exploiting poor people and human beings exploiting animals. They said there's an obvious analogy. And secondly, the second reason is that as we know, we should know from, from the environmental point of view, that if you want to produce meat from animals, it takes like, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 times more land and that much more water also. And so because in France, at the time of the revolution, France was basically a pre-industrial country, therefore wealth was almost exclusively based on land. And so rich people that wanted meat had to take land away from peasants so that they could produce meat. This happened in England and it happened in France. And therefore, for all these reasons, the French Revolution was against animal killing and, and meat. And so it's interesting. There's a very old history to this. It was. I mean, one reason was for the sake of human beings. But, but again, when you draw an analogy between human beings, say the rich exploiting the poor, and humans exploiting animals, in order for that analogy to work as an analogy, we have to feel compassion for both groups, the animals and the poor people. Rousseau and Voltaire were vegetarian. En France, Rousseau et Voltaire étaient végétariens et ils parlaient énormément de la compassion vers les animaux dans leurs écrits, entre autres.
Mon- yeah, good. Victor Hugo. Victor Hugo. So why do animals eat each other? What? Well, why do animals eat each other? Basically, because we're stupid. I mean, because they, I mean, they don't have human, animals, let's say like a tiger. I mean, when's the last time you met a, 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 a tiger that was a philosopher? <laughs> or a giraffe, you know, that, that you know, is a professor at Sciences Po or something. So... So why did God yes. create them stupid? Um, another good question. That's very good. Uh, why did God create them? Um, because, well, okay, that's a very good question. We have to go back to the purpose of the creation, the general purpose of the creation. The general purpose. So the general purpose of the creation is to give souls the opportunity to experience everything they want to experience. Because you cannot love God involuntarily. Or if God says, if you don't love me, I'm going to torture you in the most horrible way. I mean, what a great proposal, right? (laughs) Please love me, and if you don't, I'll torture you. That's like, you know... I mean, it's encouraging for all of us to receive a proposal from a psychopath. That always makes your life interesting. So, actually, the English philosopher... John Stuart Mill said once that I cannot worship a God that is morally inferior to human beings. What do you say, sir? I cannot worship a God that is morally, moralement, morally inferior to human beings. So, I mean, imagine, like, if you don't love me, I'll torture you forever. I mean, that's, that's, that's a psychopath. So, I mean, hopefully God is not a psychopath. So, so if, it's interesting, in the Bhagavad Gita, fortunately, in the Bhagavad, we do not find a jealous God. Krishna, as I sometimes say, Krishna actually does not need any 12-step programs. Uh, you know, not for anger management or jealousy management or... He's actually, he's actually like a well-balanced individual. He's actually God is psychologically healthy. Thanks, Which, John. So, so if we have other desires, if we don't, like in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says, "If you don't worship me, then you know, good luck, <laughs> bon chance." He doesn't. In the Bhagavad Gita, you're not punished because you don't accept God. You just Krishna says, if you want me, then you then then I, you know you can come to me, and if you want something else, you can go there. So Krishna is not a jealous god; he's simply he's a rational god, and he wants our love. But if we don't choose to love God, then he says, okay. How should I put it? You know, there's so many songs where, like, someone says, someday you'll know that I was the one. Someday you'll know that you should have loved me. You know, 
we've all heard those songs. So, um, but usually it's just human vanity. Like if I say, I'm the one you should love, because I... But when Krishna says, when God says you should love me, he's really being objective. He really is the greatest person. When we say, I'm the greatest person, it's just, you know, our vanity. But when Krishna says it, he's just being objective. And so if you think about it, whatever you are attracted to in this world... It comes from Krishna. So no one can say, I'm not attracted to God. Krishna says in the Gita, at the end of chapter um, 10, Jajad vibhuti matsatam, srimat urjitam, evava, tatarevava gachatvang, mamatejvang sasambhavam. Which means, in English, that whatever is in this world, whatever exists in this world that is extraordinary, that is powerful, that's beautiful, it actually it just comes from a spark of me. It's just a spark of my splendor. Krishna says, Tatareva, which literally means in each and every case. In each and every case, Avagacha, understand. And the word understand is interesting in Sanskrit because Avagacha, Ava means down. Verba, how do you say it? Verba. That's Ava. That's why the word Avatara, it means one, Tara is crossing. So, one who crosses down from the spiritual realm to the material realm. One who crosses down is the avatara. So gacha means go. So avagacha means literally, which, which is translated understand. It literally means go deep into it. Go down deep into, into this fact. So what Krishna is telling us is not merely to understand, but to go deeply into it. And you will see that everything that you admire in this world, everything you love, everything you value, is actually coming from Krishna. So if that's the case, and you still say, I'm not interested in Krishna, then we're not talking philosophy, we're talking psychology. Because philosophically, if everything I value, everything I see is beautiful, everything I like is coming from Krishna, and I still say I'm not interested in Krishna, what am I doing? What am I really doing? I'm really exploiting. I'm trying to exploit God. So, um, Krishna. So if you, Krishna is actually the source of everything we value. Back to animals, like... Animals, yes. Les animaux. Oui. Yes. You were, in, you were explaining, like, why, why, would, uh, why would there be... Yeah, why are they stupid? Why would, they, why would God create, you know... Oh, good, yeah. Good point. Merci pour me... How do you say... Rappeler? Um, because they wanted that. It's, it's just like, for example... For example, some people... I, I, I saw a movie the other day because I, I write novels and so I have to, sometimes I, I have to see stories and there was like this, uh, this sophisticated young couple and they went to a restaurant and uh, for a meal and you know, the sexy lady said, hey, 
we're not going to have a bunch of vegetarian crap, are we? <laughs> so, of course, at that point, I ended the movie. <laughs> so, I was thinking, it's crap? Well, how do you say it? Well, no, no, not, no, 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 that's not the right translation. That's the literal translation. No, no, it's in English. No, not in, no, but that's not what it really means. In English, it doesn't really sound like that in French. It's a different word. Anyway, nonsense. Let's say nonsense. Yeah. I was thinking that for that, of course, that was just an actress. You know, it was just a job she had. So, but... Whoever wrote that was saying that it's just foolishness to care about the suffering of other creatures. So we're talking here about Hollywood putting out a very, very poisonous message that compassion for other feeling creatures is just foolishness. So why should such a person have a human body? You know, why should such a person have a human body? Because if you think of an animal, the animal kills without any concern. I once, actually, I had the uh, honor of being attacked by a lion and surviving it. I'll explain the circumstances. I was actually attacked by a lion. I did. Be, I didn't used to look like this. I'm just, I'm just. Kidding. <laughs> 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 <You> translate. <laughs> okay. So uh, many, many years ago, when I was a young member of the Hare Krishna movement, when, many, many years ago, I was in Caracas, Venezuela, and uh, I went to the zoo for Krishna. Because I, I, I was thinking, anyway, I went with a friend of mine, Guru Prasad Swami, another sannyasi. So we went to this, actually he wasn't a sannyasi then. We went to the zoo, and we were standing in front of the lion cage. And both of us were wearing saffron robes. <laughs> and apparently this lion was a really, really fanatical member of Krishna West. <laughs> <laughs> Because somehow the lion got really angry and agitated. Not at anyone else, just myself and my friend who were wearing saffron robes. And the lion became so enraged that it jumped at us. There was a fence. But the lion jumped at us and, and there was a lady standing next to me with a bag of groceries. And I remember she was so shocked she dropped her bag. Because the lion really threw itself at us. And we were just like this far apart. So then, that wasn't all. <laughs> then the lion went back, the back of the cage. You could see his wife was talking to him, like, calm down, dear. Just, you know, <laughs> like, remember your blood pressure and all that. <laughs> but then, and this is not the first time a man ignores his wife. So anyway, <laughs> so the, the male lion said like, I don't want to talk about it. So then this lion went into its like attack position. I mean, it went into its attack position and then just ran at full speed. 
and threw itself against the, the, the fence. I mean, just threw it, and it kept roaring and throwing itself again and again and again, <laughs> trying to get us. And I was thinking, well, I hope, I hope they made that fence right. <laughs> so, anyway, finally we left, but, I mean, again, I was this far away from the lion. So, anyway, I had that, Krishna gave me that experience. But what I mean to say is, in, I actually looked into the lion's eyes because we were, you know, we were really right there. We made eye contact. <laughs> and uh, I could see, I could see in the eyes of this lion that wasn't anything of compassion, nothing, zero. <laughs> it was just like, it was almost just like pure hatred and desire to kill me. <clears throat> and think of that Hollywood movie, like, you know, we're going to have some vegetarian junk or, you know. Again, it's, a, it, it's just, it's stupid and it's ridiculous to care about the suffering of other creatures. So, um, we take different bodies, like animal bodies, to according to our own desire. According to our own desires, and and if someone is morally deficient, they just they they just don't care about other creatures. Then you know, you forfeit your right to a human body, and then you're given another chance later. Sava. What about an, an <laughs> no good? philosophe. An increasing human population on Earth. How do you explain that? Okay, give me two minutes. Donnez-moi deux minutes. No, actually, très très bien, admirable. Because the system. This is just one planet. And it's, it's a, you know, we're talking about the universe. Souls can get transferred. And, and also, um, maybe many souls are now being given a chance. Even, even if souls, for example, we'd have, to, we'd have to check the insect, I mean, who's going to count the insect population? Does anyone want to volunteer to count the insect population of Earth? <laughs> You know, the germs, all living things, orangutans. There's been a drop in orang the orangutan population, so that could, that, that could account for the American president, actually. The trees? I was thinking he was a, an orangutan or something. Anyway, so... So it's, it's, we have to look at all the Earth... And and actually, and we have to look at other planets, and it's a big system. <laughs> merci, merci. Je, c'est un plaisir. And, uh, yes. And this topic the other day, when the body was saying, you, we have to go through the eight million four hundred thousand species of life. No, he said we did not have to. So my question is, do we have to go to these 8 million? Oh, I think it just depends on the individual case. Yeah. It's 
Yeah. What? It's what? It's a wrap. It's a wrap. Oh, it's a wrap. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, merci à tous. And I guess another questions. Maybe we'll we'll end here.